So today is All Saints Sunday, which in the history of and the tradition of the church, it's a day to remember those who have passed on from this life to the next. And it may be one of the only, if not the only days outside of the deceased person's funeral where we're actively encouraged to remember those who have died. In our, in our circles of relationships, maybe there's an anniversary uh, of someone's death that we might mark, but sort of outside of that and, and in the church culture and the culture at large, it's probably the only time where we are actively encouraged to remember those at, at, at scale. And, and funerals are, are a part of a pastor's role, and, and I've been fortunate that I haven't had to do that many in my, in my almost six years now of of ordained ministry. I have a colleague who one year had to bury 21 people from his congregation in a year, and, and I think six in a month. And it, it's, it was just really, really difficult. I think the most that I've had in a year is, is three. And because every person is different, every funeral is different. Before becoming a pastor, I, I thought I knew what a good funeral would look like. In, in my mind, I imagined the, the a, a, a deceased person who lived a long life, who was surrounded by their loved ones. The families would be sharing memories and lessons learned, and that the people would come from far and wide to honor that person's life. And while those funerals exist, they are fewer and further between from what I've, what I've experienced. That more often than not, when I'm asked to do a funeral, the dynamics around that funeral are, are significantly more complicated. I remember the first funeral that I ever did, as a, and I wasn't even in ordained ministry yet, um, but I was, I was working in campus ministry at, in Toledo, and I was asked by a friend of mine to do the funeral for the daughter of one of her friends who had taken her own life. And I was kind of like hoping you had to be ordained to do funerals the way you have to be ordained to do weddings because it wasn't like, I, I just felt ill-equipped and, and for it. But I didn't have that as an excuse. Pretty much anyone can officiate a funeral. Uh, and so I did it. And, and I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that I did. Um, and, and it was messy. I mean, it was, it was complicated that even this, not just did this person take their own life, but the circumstances around it were, were really, really complicated. And, and I, I've done a lot of those complicated funerals where it's been an unexpected death or the death of a young person or, you know, a funeral for somebody struggling with addiction or mental health challenges, funerals where there's been significant family estrangement that never got reconciled before that person passed away. And as my time in ministry has progressed, my definition of what makes a funeral good has changed. Because I no longer think that the ideal is needed for a funeral to be good. What I think makes a funeral good is when there's the space to, to really grieve and a willingness for those in those present to engage in that grief. 
I heard a talk a few years ago uh, by a guy named Thomas Lynch, uh, who owns a series of funeral homes uh, in in Southeast Michigan. And and he shared a a concern about the decline of these good funerals that that, that I'm I'm talking about. That that certainly, you know, we have celebrations of life and they can be meaningful and hopeful and, and, and joyful. And that's great. What he saw as potentially problematic was when the celebration overshadowed the grief. And sometimes that happens when we say that the person who was deceased, you know, they wouldn't want us to be sad, right? That's, that's sometimes when we go into planning of celebrations of life, that's what people will, will say. And, and what he found problematic in that was not that, you know, we shouldn't be celebrating their life, but, but that when we say they wouldn't want us to be sad, what the folks would really be saying was, we don't want to be sad. We don't want to deal in, in the grief and, and the variety of emotions that surround, uh, especially when it's a complicated uh, death, when, when the aspects around it are, are complicated. Because not only when, when in a complicated situation it, is there sadness, but there's other emotions too, right? There's maybe anger. Maybe regret, guilt, or hurt. Sometimes there's even relief when someone passes away. And, and then we, we tell ourselves, well, we're not allowed to feel that way. So then we start to feel even more guilty. But because of the, the dynamics around the death, there is some degree of relief. It's far easier to celebrate a life than it is to grieve a death. And we might think that the deceased would not want us to be sad, and, and perhaps we don't want to be sad. But the reality is we are sad, or angry, or hurt, or feeling regret, or, or guilt, or maybe even feeling relieved. And running from grief, in whatever form that grief takes, actually gets in the way of us being comforted. Our denial of grief reveals maybe a lack of belief in the true source of our comfort because behind the denial of grief is the fear that we don't know when the grief is going to stop. If we let it in, how long does it stay with us? How long will the the feelings of sadness and anger and regret and hurt and guilt and and even relief that we're not sure that we're allowed to feel, how long will those stay with us? And how long will we be uncomfortable with those feelings? And and we don't like to be uncomfortable, right? Like we like to be comfortable. And we aren't just uncomfortable with our own grief. We're often uncomfortable with the grief of other people people. We, we don't know how to handle it. And so that's why you, you hear people say things at funerals like, well, God just needed another flower for his garden. Or, well, you should be happy because they're in heaven. And, and look, like no judgment if you've said those things to someone, because we're all just trying to make it better, right? Like we're all trying to, to help the situation, help them feel better, but there's no feeling better. 
There's nothing that you or I can say. Even when I get up in a, in a funeral and give a sermon, I know that not one word I can say will change the fact that a loved one has died and life will never be the same again. And that's why Jesus' words in the beatitude we're going to be looking at in the month of, of November is so important. We're, we're moving on in our Provoke Life campaign. We started last month talking about how it's okay not to be okay. To, this month, the theme is grieve for Christ's sake, and we're going to talk about the various dynamics of grief, not just grief over death, but grief over a lot of different things that, that happen in life. And the beatitude we're looking at is Matthew 5, verse 4, so let's read that together. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, it seems strange for Jesus to declare blessed those who mourn, right? Like, that doesn't seem like a blessed state. Grief and and mourning, it feels uncomfortable. But Jesus, in this beatitude, he does not promise that we will be comfortable. In fact, Jesus never promises we'll be comfortable ever in life. In fact, he often says the opposite. But what Jesus does promise is to bring comfort. And that comfort doesn't come from a a denial of the reality of death, but in the promise of life after death. That that's where the blessing in grief is. That in our experiencing of grief and in our making space for the grief of others, the comfort of Jesus breaks in. And that's where the blessing is found in the comforting presence of Jesus in our grief. When we fully grieve, Jesus is fully present. So in our gospel reading this morning, Jesus is called to this family of a beloved friend. It's it's Lazarus and his sisters, uh, Mary and Martha. This family was very close to Jesus. Their home was a place where Jesus would often come for, for rest and respite as he toured the country teaching and preaching and, and healing. And in the verses prior to our reading, Jesus is alerted that Lazarus is ill, and you would think that it would provoke him to come rushing to Lazarus's bedside. But that's not what happens. In John 11, verse 4, it says this, But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so Jesus and his disciples stay in, in, uh, away for a couple more days until Lazarus dies. And then Jesus shows up in Bethany. And his reason for this is really interesting. He says in verse 15, For your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So let's unpack this for a little bit. Jesus knows Lazarus is sick. He knows that he has the power to heal Lazarus because he's been healing people this whole time. But he chooses not to go and allows Lazarus to die and allows all of the grief that would ensue. Now, clearly in his mind, he intends to raise Lazarus from the dead so that his disciples might believe. But that doesn't sound very awesome, does it? Like, that doesn't sound very Jesus-y to do. 
But there is something that Jesus is, is up to. So let, let's, just, let's just hang with him a little bit. So he arrives in Bethany and he has these conversations with Martha and with Mary. And, and both in their own way, they assert that Jesus could have done something. In fact, they, they say the exact same words to him. Martha in verse 21, Mary in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. How many of you know someone who's lost a loved one, and someone in that experience has said, why didn't God intervene? Why didn't God show up and deal with this? And there's anger and doubt. And so Jesus goes to where Lazarus is buried, knowing fully well what he's about to do, that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's going to do the miraculous, and it will provoke belief in his disciples and in those who were there mourning. And yet when Jesus comes to the tomb and he sees the grief being expressed over death, Jesus loses it. And in in the reading, it sounds sort of like neat and tidy, like Jesus began to cry. He had a little tear, you know, coming down his face. You know, maybe he blew his nose a little bit. I don't think that's what it looked like. Have you ever heard of an ugly cry? Right? Like that's, I think, what Jesus was doing. Because in the, in the Greek, it talks about him weeping, and it's like full body experience, right? You're heaving, you're blubbering, like it's all the, all the, you know, all the things, right? That's what I imagine Jesus doing in this moment. But why? Why would he grieve knowing what he was about to do? And why would he wait to show up until there was something to do at all? Up until this point in John's gospel, Jesus has been doing some amazing things. He, he turned water into wine. He healed a little boy to, to prevent that person's death. He restored the ability of a man who'd been crippled uh, from, for decades. He restored his ability to, to, to walk. He miraculously, felled, he miraculously fed 5,000 people. He walked on water. He gave sight to the blind. And all along the way, he talked about eternal life. He talked about the kingdom of heaven and how he would bring that kingdom to earth in his death and resurrection. But because people can't believe unless they see it, he needed a moment where he could validate everything that he had been saying and teaching. And Lazarus's illness provided for him that moment. But I I don't think it was just about God in the flesh showing up and doing something cool. Showing up and doing something loving and helpful and, and beating death. I think Jesus also wanted to show us how God shows up in death. How God meets us in our grief. And what God does as we grieve. Jesus showed up at the funeral and he was confronted by Martha's anger and Mary's hurt and the doubt of those who thought he should have been there and could have done something. And I even imagine, you know, Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human, meaning he felt everything we felt. And I just wonder if maybe he felt a little bit of guilt in that moment. I I think that would be very human of Jesus Those who saw him grieve were astounded by his reaction in verse 36. The Jews said, see how much he loved him. Jesus was fully present 
for the gamut of human emotions that flow out of grief. And he validated the words of his teaching on eternal life, about his death and resurrection and the coming kingdom, and the words he spoke to Martha upon his arrival. He said in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Friends, this was the perfect example of a good funeral. When we fully grieve, Jesus is fully present. When we deny our grief and we fail to make space for, other, for the grief of others, it stands in the way of experiencing the presence of Jesus. Jesus said that where two or three are gathered in his name, he is there. And so whatever flows out of our grief, whether it's anger or hurt or guilt or regret or even relief, whatever flows out of it, Jesus is right there with us in it. And his presence brings comfort that though there is death, there is always resurrection. Now, I think it's important not to read the deaths that we go through into what's happening in this story. Jesus permits one death so that his presence of comfort and grief and so that his promise of eternal life could be validated. I don't believe that Jesus permits the deaths that you and I are impacted by. I don't believe he permits those to to teach us something or to make some kind of point. Death is a reality. It is the result of the brokenness of our world. And here's the deal. Lazarus died again. And his family had to grieve again. And we don't know how Lazarus died, really. I mean, maybe he died young. Maybe he died to be at an old age. Maybe he was martyred for his faith, which is probably the most likely event. His family had to go all through, the, through all this a second time. But they did so armed with the experience of Jesus' presence the first time and his promise for all time. And you and I are armed with that same presence and promise when we experience grief. My definition of a good funeral has changed because the ideal dynamics around somebody's death are, are, are pretty rare. So now I see a good funeral as one that names all of the emotions that flow from grief, whether it's sadness or anger or hurt or regret or guilt or relief. Giving permission to feel all the feels. All the feelings, all the things that are going on. Because even if we try to pretend like they aren't there, we cannot run from them. But trusting that as we fully grieve, Jesus is fully present, bringing with him grief for what everyone is going through, for what the world is going through. Jesus weeps for that. But he also brings the good news of eternal life and the kingdom of heaven. And so on this All Saints Sunday, who are you celebrating? 
Who are you grieving? Have you given yourself permission to grieve fully, to feel all the feelings? You are free in Christ to grieve fully because you are, as you fully grieve, Jesus is fully present. And when you're doing that, you're grieving for Christ's sake. And when you make space for others to fully grieve, to sit with them in their grief, not trying to make them feel better, but just to let them know that they aren't alone, you will be the embodiment of Jesus's presence and you will provoke life. Would you rise and pray with me? Lord, we live in a world that wants so very badly for us to move on from our grief, that wants us to pretend like we aren't feeling what we're feeling when we grieve, that wants us to get back to our our jobs and our, our schools and our regularly scheduled lives. And yet, Lord, we can't because life is never the same when we lose someone we love. And yet, Lord, you meet us in that place and you weep right along with us. And your presence brings us comfort and your promise gives us hope that when there is death, there is always resurrection and that there will be a day where every tear shall be wiped away and every hurt shall be healed. And so, Lord, we thank you that at the cross you set us free to grieve for your sake, to make space for those grieving, that through that you might provoke life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.